Reginald in Russia by Saki Read by Richard Crowest The Blood Feud of Toad Water A West Country Epic The Cricks lived at Toad Water and in the same lonely upland spot fate had pitched the home of the Saunderses and for miles around these two dwellings there was never a neighbour or a chimney or even a burying ground to bring a sense of cheerful communion or social intercourse. Nothing but fields and spinneys and barns, lanes and wastelands. Such was Toad Water, and even so Toad Water had its history. Thrust away in the benighted hinterland of a scattered market district, it might have been supposed that these two detached items of the great human family would have leaned towards one another in a fellowship begotten of kindred circumstances and a common isolation from the outer world. And perhaps it had been so once, but the way of things had brought it otherwise. Indeed otherwise. Fate, which had linked the two families in such unavoidable association of habitat, had ordained that the Crick household should nourish and maintain among its earthly possessions sundry head of domestic fowls, while to the Saunderses was given a disposition towards the cultivation of garden crops. Herein lay the material ready to hand for the coming of feud and ill-blood, for the grudge between the man of herbs and the man of livestock is no new thing. You will find traces of it in the fourth chapter of Genesis. And one sunny afternoon in late springtime the feud came, came, as such things mostly do come, with seeming aimlessness and triviality. One of the crick hens, in obedience to the nomadic instincts of her kind, wearied of her legitimate scratching grounds and flew over the low wall that divided the holdings of the neighbours. And there, on the yonder side, with a hurried consciousness that her time and opportunities might be limited, the misguided bird scratched and scraped and beaked and delved in the soft yielding bed that had been prepared for the solace and well-being of a colony of seedling onions. Little showers of earth-mould and root-fibres went spraying before the hen and behind her, and every minute the area of her operations widened. The onions suffered considerably. Mrs. Saunders, sauntering at this luckless moment down the garden path in order to fill her soul with reproaches at the iniquity of the weeds, which grew faster than she or her good man cared to remove them, stopped in mute discomfiture before the presence of a more magnificent grievance. And then, in the hour of her calamity, she turned instinctively to the great mother, and gathered in her capacious hands large clods of the hard brown soil that lay at her feet. With a terrible sincerity of purpose, though with a contemptible inadequacy of aim, she rained her earth-bolts at the marauder, and the bursting pellets called forth a flood of cackling protest and panic from the hastily departing fowl. Calmness under misfortune is not an attribute of either hen-folk or womenkind, and while Mrs. Saunders declaimed over her onion-bed such portions of the slang dictionary as are permitted by the nonconformist conscience to be said or sung, the Vasco da Gama fowl was waking the echoes of toad water with crescendo bursts of throat-music which compelled attention to her griefs. 
Mrs. Crick had a long family, and was therefore licensed in the eyes of her world to have a short temper, and when some of her ubiquitous offspring had informed her, with the authority of eyewitnesses, that her neighbour had so far forgotten herself as to heave stones at her hen, her best hen, the best lair in the countryside, her thoughts clothed themselves in language unbecoming to a Christian woman. So at least said Mrs. Saunders, to whom most of the language was applied. Nor was she, on her part, surprised at Mrs. Crick's conduct in letting her hens stray into another body's gardens, and then abusing of them, seeing as how she remembered things against Mrs. Crick, and the latter simultaneously had recollections of lurking episodes in the past of Susan Saunders that were nothing to her credit. Fond memory, when all things fade, we fly to thee, and in the paling light of an April afternoon, the two women confronted each other from their respective sides of the party wall, recalling with shuddering breath the blots and blemishes of their neighbour's family record. There was that aunt of Mrs. Crick's who had died a pauper in Exeter Workhouse. Everyone knew that Mrs. Saunders' uncle on her mother's side drank himself to death. Then there was that Bristol cousin of Mrs. Crick's. From the shrill triumph with which his name was dragged in, his crime must have been pilfering from a cathedral at least, but as both remembrances were speaking at once, it was difficult to distinguish his infamy from the scandal which beclouded the memory of Mrs. Saunders' brother's wife's mother, who may have been a regicide, and was certainly not a nice person, as Mrs. Crick painted her. And then, with an air of accumulating and irresistible conviction, each belligerent informed the other that she was no lady, after which they withdrew in a great silence, feeling that nothing further remained to be said. The chaffinches clinked in the apple-trees, and the bees droned around the berberis bushes, and the waning sunlight slanted pleasantly across the garden plots. But between the neighbour households had sprung up a barrier of hate, permeating and permanent. The male heads of the families were necessarily drawn into the quarrel, and the children on either side were forbidden to have anything to do with the unhallowed offspring of the other party. As they had to travel a good three miles along the same road to school every day, this was awkward, but such things have to be. Thus all communication between the households was sundered, except the cats, much as Mrs. Saunders might deplore it, rumour persistently pointed to the crick he-cat as the presumable father of sundry kittens, of which the Saunders she-cat was indisputably the mother. Mrs. Saunders drowned the kittens, but the disgrace remained. Summer succeeded spring, and winter summer, but the feud outlasted the waning seasons. Once, indeed, it seemed as though the healing influences of religion might restore to Toadwater its erstwhile peace. The hostile families found themselves side by side in the soul-kindling atmosphere of a revival tea, where hymns were blended with a beverage that came of tea leaves and hot water, and took after the latter parent, and where ghostly counsel was tempered by garnishings of solidly fashioned buns. And here, wrought up by the environment of festive piety, Mrs. Saunders so far unbent as to remark guardedly to Mrs. Crick that the evening had been a fine one. And Mrs. Crick, under the influence of her ninth cup of tea and her fourth hymn, ventured on the hope that it might continue fine, 
but a maladroit allusion on the part of the Saunders' good man to the backwardness of garden crops brought the feud stalking forth from its corner with all its old bitterness. Mrs. Saunders joined heartily in the singing of the final hymn, which told of peace and joy and archangels and golden glories, but her thoughts were dwelling on the pauper aunt of Exeter. Years have rolled away, and some of the actors in this wayside drama have passed into the unknown. Other onions have arisen, have flourished, have gone their way, and the offending hen has long since expiated her misdeeds, and lain with trust feet and a look of ineffable peace under the arched roof of Barnstaple Market. But the blood feud of toad water survives to this day.' 